The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Wednesday, March the 27th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Later on, we will be joined by Jennifer Bray and Fia Kelly to discuss what's happening in Irish politics. But first, this is a big day. It's Indicative Vote Day in Westminster. I'm joined in studio by our political editor, Pat Leahy, and our London editor, Dennis Staunton. Uh, Dennis, before I go to you, uh, Oliver Letwin was on the BBC this morning. Uh, Here's what he had to say about the way he thinks all this is going to pan out. I think it's very, very unlikely th- that uh, today's votes will uh, reveal a majority for, for anything. Uh, what they will do, I think, is to indicate you know, where the, the numbers are and which propositions stand a chance of getting a majority. And then I hope that by Monday, which leaves us uh, four days for discussion between uh, many people inside the House of Commons, uh, we might be able to crystallise an actual majority in favour of one or more propositions. So, Dennis, obviously we have the podcaster's nightmare here of a fast uh, developing story. Uh, Oliver Letwin will be um, uh, talking with John Burko. We'll get some better idea this afternoon about what questions might be on this kind of interesting ballot paper and then a vote later this evening at um, sometime after after 7 o'clock. Do you want to put your head in the block and predict for me how you think all that is going to pan out today in terms of what might end up on this ballot paper? Well, there are 16 proposals that have been tabled, and I think he'll probably whittle those down to maybe about seven. There are a few, a few that are kind of duplicates, so there are a couple of them which are proposing uh, a customs union, and there are a, a couple of quite similar ones about the idea of revoking Article 50. So once you get rid of some of those duplications, I think you'll probably have uh, one which is proposing this so-called common market 2.0, which is uh, being part of both the customs Union and the single market. You would probably have one which is uh, advocating no deal. You would probably have one which is advocating a second referendum, one advocating uh, a customs union, uh, one advocating the Labour Party's position, which is a customs union and close alignment with the single market, and uh, one or two others. But the the key thing about this is that MPs are allowed to vote for any number of these options. Now, the parties are likely to whip Uh, in favor of one option or another. Uh, But they may be, uh, they haven't haven't told us exactly how they're going to do it, but what's likely is that they'll ask or or whip their MPs to vote for whatever their party's favorite option is, but then they'll allow them freedom to vote for various others as well. And so so you'll get this, uh, you know, this idea later on of which are the most popular ones, Uh, But this is just the start of the process. And what uh, they're going to do is they're also going to reserve time on Monday for the for the second round. This is like a kind of a pre-qualification round. And then you get into uh, next week, Monday and possibly again on Wednesday, the business of whittling down these options. Because once you've decided what people's uh, second favorite is, so that what, you know, apart from what their, their absolute maximum is, what they could live with that's when you get into trying to find some kind of consensus around something. And in relation to the the whip, what is the Conservative Party likely to whip its members to vote in favour of uh, from that menu which you've just described? 
Well, there is one uh, proposal which is simply to respect the outcome of the referendum and to leave the European Union. It's a very kind of an anodyne one. I think they'd probably whip in favour of that. They have to be a little bit careful because, uh, as on all these matters, the cabinet and the party is divided over what you ought to do. And so there are some members of the cabinet who would say they ought to whip against all options for a soft Brexit. Uh, it may be that, for example, they whip against the idea of revoking Article 50 and cancelling Brexit unilaterally. Uh, but, uh, but I think they have to be a bit careful because there's another vote coming up later tonight, which is uh, the statutory instrument which will change the date on the Withdrawal Act from the 29th of March to the 12th of April or the 22nd of May in accordance with the extension of Article 50. And since half of the Conservative Whip's office voted against an extension the last time it came up, they're not going to be able to impose a whip on that one. And although there's no danger that the statutory instrument won't be adopted because the opposition will uh, vote in favour of it, they, you know, the whips are going to have to uh, to be a little bit uh, you know, careful in the way that they try to impose their will on MPs. And there is also a danger that uh, you know, uh, there, there are figures going around anything from a dozen to 20 or 30 members of the government would actually resign if they were not allowed to vote for various options for a softer Brexit. So I think uh, you know, my expectation, and I may be proved wrong in a couple of hours, but my expectation would be that uh, they'll have fairly light touch whipping uh, on uh, on both of these motions. And in relation to then, just to, to tie off the, the whip issue, in relation to the Labour whip, um, and you've, you've said the Labour, some version of, of Labour's proposal is likely to be on this ballot paper, but it's very close in many ways to what's described as common market 2.0, isn't it? I saw the, the Guardian yesterday evening suggesting that Jeremy Corbyn uh, was, was considering whether to row in be, behind some version of common market 2.0. Yeah, they're sending a slightly mixed signal. So you get uh, from, say, Keir Starmer, who's their uh, shadow Brexit secretary, he sounds very um, you know, very keen on this. Uh, and and there isn't all that much of a difference. I mean, there's a, it's essentially a question of whether you're actually in the single market or if you're just close to the single market. And so it's a, it's a kind of a fine distinction. But I'd say that the Labour Party will whip in favour of their motion, but that they will then perhaps give some indication of, uh, you know, in their open opening speeches about where the party or the leadership feels uh, the other better options are and probably that would be something like um, the uh, you know the common market 2.0 and also there's another amendment which is proposed by Margaret Beckett which would put any uh, withdrawal agreement that was approved by the uh, by the parliament to a confirmatory referendum and so uh, that would kind of satisfy both the aspirations of people who want to have some kind of a Brexit deal on the one hand, but also those people who insist that there ought to be a second referendum. Pat, these are obviously grave and serious matters that can impact on all our lives. But for those of us who are interested in the political process and and how it works, this is a sort of fascinating historic day this today with the the House, House of Parliament officially taking over control of the uh, of the order of the House from the government this process sort of unprecedented process of voting on multiple options later later today it's kind of fascinating stuff isn't it well I mean it's in historic terms it's quite revolutionary what is happening uh, there today with as you say the Commons taking control of a major issue of public policy, the major issue of public policy over the last number of decades and basically deciding what it is going to order the government to do. And 
that's remarkable in itself. But the fact that the government is more or less acquiescing in this, you know, if I had put this proposition to you two years ago uh, and, and to Dennis, I suspect you said, well, something like that couldn't happen because the government would simply call an election. But nobody at Westminster, uh, least of all the Tories, wants an election now. I wonder, though, um, is a consequence of that this this you know, historic move that is taking place and allied to the sort of voting patterns in recent weeks. Does it mean, Dennis, I wonder, that that the actual, the, the, the whip, the authority of the whips is completely undermined? I know many MPs will find it persuasive, but it seems to me that the Commons resembles more you know, a sort of early proto-parliament which is dominated by factions rather than political parties and those factions will, rather than the parties, will have their say today. That's exactly right. And the the authority of the whips has been uh, you know, diminishing over the last few months. And you saw uh, you know, the most egregious example was when uh, a number of uh, cabinet ministers defied a three-line whip by abstaining on a motion a couple of weeks ago, and they stayed in their jobs. So that, uh, you know, it's, um, and and again, Brexit is the great dividing line of British politics now. It's not really the parties, and uh, both parties are divided. Obviously, the Conservative Party is more divided than the Labour Party, but still, the two main parties are divided in their approach to it. And there are, as you say, factions, and this, in a way, what we're going to witness today and over the next uh, week or so, is a kind of a, a, a sort of an organizational uh, version of this of this factionalism so that you're actually going to see you know, it's an expression of factionalism where that uh, you know the idea will be that they will break down not on party lines but simply on preference for uh, the future relationship with the European Union and and as you say Dennis um, battle lines will be drawn up this evening but nobody's really going to be faced to make a really hard decision nobody's going to have to ignore the whip if they don't want to make a statement by ignoring the whip it's when it gets down to the sharper end of this when when these choices are narrowed down next week that these things really start to matter yeah, and I actually, I think even next week, it's not so much uh, the whips that they'll worry about because, uh, you know, I just don't think that most people worry about the whips quite as much as they used to. Uh, I think it's going to be that uh, people, for example, if what you want is a second referendum, uh, your, your second choice might be a soft Brexit like uh, staying the single market in the customs union. But you don't really want to uh, to see the customs union and the single market doing well because you want to kill that option off so that the supporters of that will go for your second referendum. So there's, uh, you know, one of the things that's going to be very important is how they work out what the next stage is. So, for example, one option would be to have a kind of sequential elimination, what they're calling strictly come Brexit or the Brex factor. And uh, and so, you know, that you eliminate... Celebrity love Brexit. Yeah, exactly. And so so you eliminate the least popular options. But the problem with that is that uh, you can start gaming the system uh, to try to uh, vote tactically to defeat uh, the option which is actually your second favourite. And so that's one of the reasons why, for example, they're all voting on a single ballot 
paper tonight on all of these things so that they're not going to to know in advance which is doing uh, better. So in that sense, it's a bit like Eurovision Song Contest voting, that you don't actually know exactly which is doing best while you're voting. But uh, so, so that I, I think that what they're going to try to do is to find a system which will actually encourage the votes to head towards what people's uh, second best choice is so that they actually will uh, finally coalesce around something which everybody or at least a majority can live with. But maintaining that reality TV metaphor, what of the the only way is Brexit party represented by uh, Rees-Mogg and Johnson? I was just reading this extraordinary column by Boris Johnson in this morning's Telegraph, which uh, I'll quote briefly from it. This was meant to have been a week of national jubilation. It was meant to be the week when church bells were rung, coins struck, stamps issued, and bonfires lit to send beacons of freedom from hilltop to hilltop, and so on and and so forth. I mean, if, if, if a public schoolboy with high self-esteem issues had been at the sherry, you might expect that. But I mean, is is, does that indicate any serious shift from Johnson? I was watching him at an event, a Telegraph-hosted event yesterday evening. Um, that sort of cartoonish element. Um, Rees-Mogg has basically said that he will vote for May's deal now. Is 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 Johnson in his own inimitable way signalling the same thing? Yes. Uh, what you're seeing is that uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg and Boris Johnson, in a slightly more opaque way, that what they're doing is that that they're basically saying, look, we hate this deal. It's a terrible deal. Everything we said about it, that it's slavery, it's vassalage, it's not Brexit. All of these things are still true. But it may be the only way that we can save Brexit, because if we uh, don't vote for Theresa May's deal, then Brexit can be delayed even denied or reversed, either through a revocation of Article 50 or a second referendum. And so this is probably the least worst uh, option that's available to us. And so we should go for it. Although Jacob Rees-Mogg did enter the caveat and said, you know, he'd only go for it if the DUP voted for it. And the DUP are, as of now, not minded to vote for it. How long will that last, though? How long will that caveat last. I was reading, if Hugh was uh, perusing the Telegraph this morning, uh, I was reading the Daily Mail in uh, in which uh, said Jacob Rees-Mogg has a piece in which he draws attention to the dictum of the Duke of Wellington or the Great Duke of Wellington uh, as he referred to him, who said uh, that the Queen's government must go on at all costs and all responsible politicians have a duty even if it countermands their own piety. Uh, so it seems to me that he may be preparing to ditch the DUP if necessary to achieve Brexit. This will come, of course, I suspect, as a huge shock to the DUP that parts of the Tory party prefer Brexit uh, to uh, to them, but perhaps not that much of a shock to the rest of us. Except that it's all a bit academic, because if the DUP don't come on board, uh, you're not going to get a majority for the deal. And if you're not going to get a majority... Is that definite, deal, do you think? I, I, don't, I don't see. I mean, I think even if the DUP do come on board, I think it's going to be quite difficult for uh, Theresa May to get a majority. And I think that's one reason why the DUP don't feel under too much pressure to make a move right now. Because if you look at it, there are probably uh, 20, maybe 25, maybe 30 hardcore Brexiteers who are simply not going to vote for the deal. They've made it clear that they're not going to vote for it no matter what, whether the DUP do it or whether Jacob Rees-Mogg does it, they're just not going to go for it. And so you then have to make up those numbers uh, with uh, Labour votes. And there, there were maybe somewhere from three to eight 
Labour MPs who have voted with the government on some of these motions. And what the government was hoping was that you could get that up to maybe 20, maybe more. And the problem is that the other 10, 12, 15, whatever it is, Labour MPs they were hoping to get, they now, through these indicative votes, have an opportunity to satisfy their leave voting constituents by voting for a version of Brexit without actually upsetting their local constituency party, which might deselect them if, they're, if they seem to be supporting a Tory Brexit or helping a conservative government to, to pass its main piece of legislation. So, that, uh, so they now have an opportunity to satisfy both uh, elements that they have to satisfy without supporting her deal. And so I think that uh, you know, no matter how you look at it, and uh, no matter what the DUP does, it's going to be difficult. But certainly if the DUP don't come on board, I think it's impossible to see how this uh, thing is going to be got through. And I think if, you know, if there's no chance of getting the vote through, she's, you know, there's no point in the government bringing the vote because, uh, because of the Speaker's ruling uh, a couple of weeks ago. It means that you know, they may have one more shot at bringing this deal back, but they're probably not going to have too many more. So at what point, if at all, does pressure actually come on the DUP then, Dennis? Well, I think the pressure comes on if there's a danger of a no-deal Brexit. I mean, I think if you look at this, and I've spoken to some members of the DUP about this in sort of uh, candid conversations, if you look at this from a strictly unionist point of view, most of the options uh, for Brexit are not a threat to the union. So, for example, a customs union and a single market membership is not a threat to the union or Northern Ireland's place in it because everybody would be in the same boat. In the same way, even remaining in the European Union is not a threat to unionism because, you know, obviously uh, it's a Brexit supporting party, but for the DUP, Brexit is a second order issue compared to uh, to the, the integrity of the union. Now, the two things that are a threat to the union as far as they're concerned is the backstop on the one hand, uh, you know, in its present form, because there's a danger that it's going to create divergence between Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom, and a no-deal Brexit, because that will uh, disrupt Northern Ireland's economy, and there is a danger that that will uh, fuel resentment, make a border poll more likely. So if they can avoid those two, everything in the middle, every, you know, all other options are actually all right and maybe even better than any version of Theresa May's deal as far as the DUP are concerned. So I think the only moment that, you know, so I think to put it simply, I think they can afford to sit back see what happens with these indicative votes. And if, say, uh, you know, a proposal for a soft Brexit wins a majority, they won't vote for it. But, you know, they could be quite relaxed about that actually being the outcome of all of this. And it's only if there is some danger of, say, a hard Brexit, uh, uh, you know, a no-deal Brexit, that then perhaps they would come on board. But as of now, what they're saying, and they're sounding more hardline this week than they were last week, what they're saying now is that the backstop and the withdrawal agreement has to change. Uh, and if it doesn't change, they're not ready to support Theresa But there's, there's no prospect of the withdrawal agreement changing. No. So in the uh, in the event, Dennis, and we're into the kind of what ifs here, so apolo- apologies for that. We try not to do to, to do too much of that. In the event that Theresa May's deal does not get over the line uh, in advance of the the deadline in uh, in whatever it is, two and a half weeks' time now, um, is the view that um, Parliament will have taken control and will essentially be instructing, and is it able to instruct the government? to request the longer extension. I think Sammy Wilson even referred to the fact that a 12-month extension would be preferable than some of the other options he was looking at. A longer extension in order to put in place a deal that accommodates a customs union, some alignment with the single market and so on and so forth. And 
Is that feasible in that time frame? Well, if Parliament takes control of the parliamentary timetable as it has, it can do anything, including passing an act of parliament. And uh, and so if it legislates, that requires the government to act. And, uh, and so it can legislate to... Uh, uh, to instruct the government to seek an extension. I think uh, uh, the, there's no question but that the government would seek an inst- extension in any case because Theresa May has made clear that uh, a no-deal Brexit is not going to happen because Parliament will not allow it and Parliament will find a way of preventing it from happening. So I think that if uh, you can't come up with some solution which uh, Parliament can get behind and the government can choose to implement in the next couple of weeks, then uh, the government will seek a longer extension. Or there is one other possibility, which is that they go for a general election, but that would still require a longer extension. So, I mean, I was watching um, Newsnight last night and they play this party game nearly every night now where they have experts from left and right of the political spectrum uh, slapping up cards to indicate what they think, you know, the options are going to be over the next few months. They all ended up as a general election at some point, whether that general election might be in the immediate future or might be uh, once a longer extension has been agreed, perhaps in the summer at some stage. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, in a way, no matter what happens, it's quite clear that the parliament as it is, is not functioning. It's just, you know, the government can't get any legislation through. And so, uh, you know, you need, uh, you, know, if the, you know, if the parliament can't make decisions, you need to get a new parliament. And the way to do that is a general election. Uh, but to get that uh, to happen, first of all, you probably need to have some kind of interim resolution of Brexit, either through a deal or through uh, a longer extension. And secondly, you probably do need a new leader of the Conservative Party. And uh, I imagine that if you do get a new leader of the Conservative Party in the next couple of months, that leader will, before the end of the year, want to seek a mandate uh, from the people and seek a, you know, try, to, try to win a majority. And given that Labour is still lagging in the polls right now, and a new leader might get a bit of a boost. They might be tempted, uh, uh, even though many of their uh, MPs might be uh, might be a bit reluctant. On that point, if there was, you know, if the withdrawal agreement is passed, or there is a long extension, the Conservative Party is then likely to demand and require, I think, Dennis, a Brexiteer as its uh, as its next leader to negotiate the future relationship. Yes, although uh, because the system is that uh, you know, the the MPs, the parliamentary party, choose two candidates, and those two candidates uh, go to the broader membership. Now, the broader membership is hugely Brexiteer, and so they would certainly be inclined to go for a Brexiteer over a non-Brexiteer. The trouble is with devious people like parliamentarians: is how do uh, you get yourself onto the final two? And so, for example, while Boris Johnson would probably be the choice of the membership. Uh, He has so many enemies in the parliamentary party that he's going to struggle to get onto the ballot. And so the question is, is it going to be another Brexiteer like Dominic Raab, or is it going to be a kind of a nouveau Brexiteer like, say, uh, Jeremy Hunt or Sajid Javid, who campaigned for Remain in the referendum, but have now decided to become very hardline in their approach to Brexit. And so uh, so it's it's quite unpredictable, uh, you know, exactly who's going to get onto that ballot. But what about Gove? Right. Is he a busted flush at this stage? Or it was his view, you know, that you just had to do, you, you, you had to do whatever agreement to get out, which is largely that now being adopted by many of the Brexiteers, including even Rees-Mogg and Johnson, as we uh, as we discussed. Will he get credit for adopting that position early. 
he has quite a lot of support within the parliamentary party. His, his support is is quite broadly based. So there are quite a few, although he was one of the, uh, the leaders of the Vote Leave campaign, uh, the very hardcore Brexiteers don't like him because they feel that uh, you know he went soft on Brexit by remaining in the cabinet. Uh, but there are quite a lot of Remainer MPs who uh, who admire him. They think he's he's bright and he's imaginative, and that uh, and so I think that he you know despite his reputation for uh, treachery, uh, you know, which is founded in fact, uh, it's uh, you know <laughs> nonetheless. I, I think, also you know, not necessarily a handicap. No, it's not a job. disqualifying <laughs> factor. That, exactly. No. But you wouldn't let. So I wouldn't write him off. Right, listen, Dennis, we leave it there because I have no doubt we'll be we'll be returning to it. Thanks for joining us. Um, Pat, before we finish up on this subject and, and move on to other ones, um, what are people saying in Dublin about all this? Are they just can they just sit in their hands and keep their mouths shut? We've had some fairly grim, bleak prognoses about what would happen in the event of a no deal Brexit. Oh, they're saying certainly on the record, saying very little. There's a bit of a lockdown on all uh, on all commentary, really. Um, uh, in in government about it, but it is, I think, noticeable that as talk of no deal has grown both in Dublin and in Brussels, the traffic in Westminster, which is where the decision will be made, has been very much in the other direction. So we've had Brussels, you know, talking up the possibility both at the summit last week and the Commission earlier this week talking up no deal as uh, as as uh, you know, a growing likelihood and talking about its preparations for no deal and in turn that putting pressure on uh, the Irish government to say what would happen on the border uh, in the event of no deal and what preparations it has uh, uh, it has made. And the Irish government yesterday in the Dáilí over Adker was admitting that discussions are taking place with the European Commission, neither side saying anything officially uh, about that. Because, of course, the reality is that if there is a no-deal Brexit, there will, in due course, not the day after, maybe not the week after, but in due course, there will have to be checks of some sort on the frontier between the EU and the third country, UK, whether they take place in a little hut on the border or not, that seems unlikely. But there will have to be some checks. And uh, Cliff Taylor has uh, has a good explanatory piece about that in uh, in the paper today. But the government doesn't want to talk uh, about that. And, and, and I think if that direction is maintained in Westminster... They'll get away with that. They'll get away with but it. Peter Foster from The Telegraph, who we had in here a couple of weeks ago, has a long tweet thread, which is worth uh, listeners checking out if they're interested, and some pieces, I think, in that newspaper, about this very delicate line which Leo Varadkar has to walk, that on the one hand, um, the government is effectively saying, no matter what happens in the event of a no-deal Brexit, we're not putting checks on the border immediately, they're not necessary, and that some Brexiteers in the UK are pointing to that saying, see... No yes. need for no need for a backstop I mean, there at all. This is one of the reasons why the government has not wanted to, to to talk about that because it offers, and we've heard this in the House of Commons, because it offers solace to the Brexiteers to say, if there can be no border checks after a no deal, then why do we need the backstop in uh, in the first place? But it seems to me on the current. Uh, direction of traffic at Westminster where the most likely outcome is either the withdrawal agreement goes through or the alternative to that is that there's a softer Brexit that the Irish government will probably get away with it. Pat, thanks for that. Uh, stick with us. We'll be joined after the break by Fiac and Jennifer. You're listening to the Irish Times. And I'm joined now by Jennifer Bray and Fia Kelly from our political staff. Fia, you had a wild, wonderful time down at the Fine Gael Ardesh, um, last Saturday. 
Finnegan Conference, you know, Finnegan <gasps> are quite particular about what they call uh, a, a non-voting event a conference. So it was a conference rather than an Ordesh. In Ordesh, they have elections to executive councils. So what was that thing we were at just a few months ago? That was an Ordesh because they okay. had uh, elections to to executive council. They passed motions. This was just the conference where they have a couple of nice seminars and stuff like that. It was fine. I don't think anybody in the party had any great expectations for it. It was a bit of a non-event, an excuse to get your local and European election candidates in front of the cameras, uh, get them on TV for that glorious 11 o'clock to 1 o'clock slot on Saturday morning where they talk about policy, which I'm sure the whole country watches. Um, but aside from that, there was, there was nothing really to report from it. Um, more interesting thing I, I, I found about it was... the because of Brexit, it's so uncertain. Like I was asking people last week, well, what are you going to be saying this Saturday? Like, we just don't know because we don't know what the European Council is going to decide. But I think the Taoiseach speech was okay, but it, it kind of tried to weave together the different strands of what he wants his election pitch to be. So the last Ordesh was the blunt tax-cutting announcement. This was weaving it in with climate change, you know, public services, the environment. So he was trying to thread his various different arguments together for why you should And given that I didn't see it how was it how did that how did that play did you think it was a good speech it, it was it was an okay speech it it, it, it was okay um, I could see what they were trying to do which was to you know say we're not just about cutting your taxes we have all these other different things as well so I think that's the next stage of their presentation to the public it did look slick as it always does with Fine Gael. so it's a younger cohort of people on the stage looking out at the camera than there may be at Fianna Fáil, for example. And he made play of that. Like, he did this thing at the start of his speech where he said, I'd like to thank, you know, I've come back from the European Council or whatever, and I'd like to thank Simon Coveney for all his hard work and being away from his family, and also Helen McEntee. And it was, it was a, to me, it looked like the beginnings of that. This is my team. This is my cabinet. What, what have the other guys got? And the argument has always been that Fine Gael have a cabinet around Leo Varadkar, Young, depending on your your view of the world, competent or not, whereas people in Fianna Fáil would see their weakness as beyond Michal Martin, this strength perhaps isn't there as it is in Fine Gael. So that's what I thought. It was the first, you know, this is my team. This is the team I want to face the country. Just ask you about one other thing. What's this business about ovations for Jeffrey Donaldson saying that Ireland should I rejoin the Commonwealth? I think I'm going to Jennifer for that one because I wasn't actually in the in the hall at uh, the moment, matter of debate. Yeah, so uh, obviously Jeffrey Donaldson was one of the sort of uh, big surprises that we were told about on Friday evening as we all made our way down to the conference and he spoke on Saturday afternoon alongside Naomi Long um, and basically he was talking about the relations between the North and the South and it was quite a wide-ranging talk and at the very end he made this, it was quite a throwaway comment actually about how, and by the way, I really think that Ireland should rejoin the Commonwealth and people clapped. Now I would say in a room of... A couple of hundred people max or 250 people, I'd say maybe a third of them clapped. But it was still enough to be noticeable. Mm. And at the very, very end, Simon Coveney said this really throwaway comment about how, you know, this, that and the other. And I'm not going to comment on the Commonwealth. I'm not going to comment on that. But then, of course, as soon as he got out to do his doorstep, the first thing was, well, are we joining the Commonwealth or not? Um, So it actually, it became... The question of the of the national conference. It's incredible to think that the Fine Gael national conference became about the Commonwealth. Well, it's no secret that there's a certain element of Fine Gael uh, who would would think that would be a good idea. Yeah, but I I think that the from what I can hear, the vast majority of the cabinet wouldn't necessarily be in favour of rejoining the Commonwealth. It's kind of the John Bruton wing of Fine Gael would would be in favour of it. Absolutely, and and yesterday Mary Lou Macdonald was out in the plinth talking about Brexit and all other things and. I asked her about this comment about the Commonwealth and her own position on it and her position is that 
she doesn't see any benefit in it, but let's have the conversation. Um, but she, it was really interesting. She kept saying, if Fine Gael want to put forward this proposition at their at their national conference, well, if this is Fine Gael's policy, let Fine Gael lay it out. And <laughs> so I was, this is what, she would welcome yes, that, I'm it's sure. Like, well, yeah. it's not, yeah. it's not. It actually came from Jeffrey Donaldson, but it did become the talking point of the entire weekend, which is sort of unfortunate. Because I suppose the logic is, from Sinn Féin's point of view, if you're going to have a United Ireland fee, it could almost certainly have to be within the Commonwealth. Yeah, like Mary Lee McConnell said that herself before in the past, in, in, in the context of a debate about unity, this is something that we'll have to talk about and I always assume that if you're talking about Irish unity the Commonwealth is the quid pro quo that in order to say to people of a unionist persuasion or in Ireland you know you value your links with Britain this is the way like we are a member of the Francophonie I think you know observe, observing members so but I think what happened was like if you speak privately to senior people at the, in Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil they will admit yeah in the context of unity of course this will happen but in I don't isolation. think not, in, in isolation no and like Leo Varadkar's answer when it was put to him on the radio and TV on Sunday morning was, you know, not at this point in time. So mm. they're not entirely shutting the door on it, but it, yeah. it, it, it was probably an unwelcome, I suppose, distraction from the day's events. I was struck by what Jen said, though, but, you know, Jeffrey Donaldson being the big surprise of a conference kind of reminds you of the political equivalent of like, you know, cool band playing the woods electric picnic. <laughs> like that was the height of it at the weekend, you know. Jeffrey Donaldson was the cool band. That tells you everything that, you need to know. That, that, that does say quite a lot. Jen, Fiek was referring to the fact that there were kind of, there were climate change elements in uh, in, in Leo Varadkar's speech at the weekend. And you, you've, uh, your Politics Digest, your own Politics Digest, email digest duty this morning. I'm presuming that all our listeners have signed up to, the, to our Listen, Politics Digest. None are own Harris of the Sunday Independent reads our digest so there you are well there you are that, 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 that is quite a wide range but, um, um, in the Politics Digest you, you mentioned the fact that this subject is, is coming up this week uh, the, the whole issue of carbon tax which could be a really tricky one for the government yeah, so the Oireachtas Committee on Climate Action is holding a private meeting today. They're hoping to finalise a report into how we go forward to deal with issues such as carbon tax, which will be hopefully released tomorrow on Thursday. And, you know, obviously there will be targets and, and various different goals set out, but one of the, the most divisive aspects of it will be the carbon tax. So what we're seeing is uh, a split between the parties about how to go forward. Like, for example, you have smaller parties like People Before Profit who feel that, you know, any any charge should be paid by the bigger polluters, for for want of a better phrase. And then you have Fine Gael who are saying, well, yes, we want to increase this tax, but we will give it back to you in what form we don't really know 100% yet. But then you have Fianna Fáil saying, well, we don't agree with this fee and dividend approach. We, we agree with that, but we would rather see it put into something like retrofitting or, or, or schemes that actually have so an there's, impact on so the So there's brand. three different broad camps, and there's probably more than that, but there's the People yeah. for a Profit one, which is probably also interesting coalition shared by the kind of Healy Ray style independence too, mm-hmm. which is don't don't bring in a carbon tax on individuals of, of any sort. And I suppose the argument of that you should put it on the big companies is that the point of this carbon tax is actually to influence behaviour, isn't yeah, it? So it is. in order to do that, you need to influence certain activities which, yeah. contribute, which contribute to global warming. But then the Fine Gael one of the checks in the post um, and then the Fianna Fáil one of ring-fencing it for certain kinds of activities. It's huge kind of divergence across these there things. There is, and obviously Fine Gael are very aware that they need the support of Fianna Fáil and the budget. Whether that budget ever comes to pass is a whole other conversation, but they do need that support. And, you know, not only that, it's a political difficulty for them as well, getting something like this through, because it's a new charge and it could be painted by, you know, people who are profit and Sinn Féin as a new tax 
um, much in the way that the successful water charges campaign went. So it's a delicate time and we'll see what the report comes out with tomorrow. But it does seem to be that what will happen is that there will be an increase. The sort of details of how that comes back to people will be worked out as part of the bu- budget, but you will have the smaller parties objecting. And, and not just a new tax vehicle, but it can be argued an, an unfair tax too. And you only have to look at France and what happened with the Gilets jaunes to see, to see what that argument is, that if you are not earning a very high salary and you're living in somewhere in the, let's say, the broader commuter belt in uh, outside, outside Dublin, you have, to have, you have to run two cars in order to get your kids to school and get to work and that, you actually, you're going to get hit with a large, large element of carbon tax as a result of that. Whereas what the, what they call in France, the bobos, the bohemian bourgeois living in the inner city, able to take advantage of public transport, getting their, getting their green bikes and their, eat their lentils and look down their noses at the people who are living out in the suburbs. They're going to benefit even more out of it. And then, then they get a grant to insulate their houses as mm. well. Yeah, I think that that has been the key sensitivity that Leo Varadkar has instanced when he has spoken about a, a, a carbon tax. He has specifically talked about how it was badly handled in France. And that is, he thinks, the reason for this, as Jen was saying, you know, cash or welfare payments straight back into your pocket to make sure that the blow is cushioned for people in those rural areas that you're talking about. Um, but I, I think there, one of the difficulties I see ar- arising in this debate is what you mentioned. That as far as I understand, at the committee meeting last night when they were finalising elements of this, there was a bit of toing and froing over the Fianna Fáil position about poverty-proofing the carbon tax and what measures can be put in place to ensure that those people who will be hardest hit have measures to make sure like look okay there's something else for you here Mm. but how they reconcile that with the position that the carbon tax should go straight to the exchequer and be hypothecated and then reinvested into insulating homes and greenways etc is going to be interesting I think that is going to be the I, I would be surprised and I don't think it is going to do this that the target of 80 euro per tonne by 2030 is explicitly committed to by Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, Labour Party, the Greens. The Greens want to go further. I don't know if the committee report is going to spell that out. Uh, there will be agreement that that is where you should get to buy a carbon tax, but disagreement about what you do afterwards. So that will be kicked into the long grass, I'd say, into budget negotiations. Okay, again. Again. I think there'll be a bit of fudge in this that, okay, they'll say, okay, look, the broad aim direction of travel is there but what we do when we get there is another story because this plays into a kind of narrative which we've heard a little bit over the last few weeks which is that Fine feeling internally about its prospects are is that they're quite gung-ho in Dublin and they feel they're doing well and the you know the boom is getting boomier and there's all that stuff going on but perhaps they haven't they they haven't quite got the same kind of reaction and the grassroots in Fine Gael grassroots in rural areas are saying Hold on, lads, uh, because there is a potential rural-urban divide on this particular carbon tax issue. And there's also a potential young-old divide on this issue. And I think that's what Fine Gael are looking to, that that march we saw a couple of weeks ago. Granted, it was school kids. Who doesn't want a day off school when they're that age? But I think there's a feeling that, yes, there is an urban-rural divide, but there's also a young-old divide. And if you're a political party, you may not want to be behind the curve on what the next generation is saying. So I think that's the difficult balance they have to strike. And I think the one thing I find curious about this whole debate is that uh, Sinn Féin, who are against the carbon tax, they're using the old classic argument of, you know, in principle, it looks okay, but not just yet because the infrastructure isn't there too, but some of their TDs and MEPs were like front and centre at that 
March uh, March a couple of weeks ago, you know, banging the drum for climate change. Yet they won't back a carbon tax in this committee. Uh, although, Jen, the same argument has been made about some of the Fine Gael ministers who showed up on the fringes that March as well, because, to be honest, the record of this government is pretty atrocious. We're some of the worst performers in Europe and have been for years, and they're responsible for that. Yeah, exactly. And, and Leo Varadkar has constantly made this point and always uses that word laggards, that we're laggards in relation to climate change and some of his kind of biggest speeches in the EU he's mentioned that and gotten and has been praised for addressing the issue but talking about it and saying it and, and addressing it in that way over and over again doesn't really get you anywhere you have to bring in the changes such as the carbon tax and he said himself in the doll yesterday we cannot address this issue if we don't bring in a carbon tax so you know that they're, they're in a difficult position in a way but you know he's they've laid their colours to the mass and they're just going to have to go ahead and bring it in one way or the other I spent a lot I spent a few days last week out on the road um I went down to Longford and I went to Granard in Longford, Longford Town, Sligo, a couple of small places in between to just to chat to people and to test that argument about you know, rural Ireland feeling left behind. And while it is true that um, there is an, a lot of unhappiness with Fine Gael, people don't think that measures have been taken to help their circumstances. There is no great rush towards any other politician. It's not like they're saying Fine Gael bad, Fianna Fáil good or Sinn Féin good. If anything what you hear back is the argument for independence. Like, you know, we all assume that at this stage in the electoral cycle, with a government in office for two or three years, that the independence would go down and the parties would kind of consolidate their position. That is not the case. And you'd hear people who, on appearance, would strike you as, you know, relatively middle class. People would say, well, I don't really, I'm not really in favour of those Healy Rays and their type of politics, but they're the only people who are standing for this, this and this. So if anything, I think if there is a political fallout from this, it may be towards independence. And interestingly, I, some of this issue was discussed at the Fianna Fáil Parliamentary Party yesterday evening. I'm, I'm, I think at the front bench, I'm not sure. And a couple of TDs stood up and said, what about our core voters? They're not happy with this. And Michal Martin said, we just have to go with this. Uh, this is one that we're going ahead with. But he outlined a 50-year plan along the lines of a Danish model, apparently, is what he instanced. But a couple of TDs stood up and said, our base are not happy and he said yeah well they might not be but we're going with it anyway it seems to be the only way that uh, these things are going to get over the line is some cross, cross party sort of a, a, a to where, agree, where, agreement of some where, sort. where that gets us though you know cross party agreement on, on the, the, the level of tax rise but like what you do after that mm. Jen finally uh, you, uh, we had Bill Browder in uh, last year talking about his efforts to get the Magnitsky Act uh, which imposes sanctions against, uh, against certain Russian interests um, implemented in Ireland and he's back again today you were talking to him yeah, so Bill Browder, a very successful American-born, UK-based financier. He, um, at one stage, his company was one of the largest foreign portfolio investors in Russia. And in the decade pre-2005, he would have, at one stage, probably thought of Vladimir Putin as an as a ally, in a, in a sense. And what happened leading up to 2005 is that he began to investigate corruption within the state. Um, and he found himself basically denied, ent- denied entry back into Russia in 2005 and five because he was a threat to national security. That's what they said. So basically what happened was his lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, was investigating a $230 million tax rebate fraud. And then he was arrested and accused of the very thing that he was investigating. Uh, He was brought to prison. And in in 2009, he died in prison. He wasn't given medical treatment that he would have needed for a condition that he had. And ever since then, Browder has been on this mission. Yeah, so his his mission has been to introduce these Magnitsky Acts. So what do they do? They free they stop the visas and they freeze the assets of those people who are associated with his death. 
And, you know, it's been successful in terms of it's been brought in in the US, it's been brought in in the UK, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Canada. And he's here in Dublin today, actually, to uh, give a briefing to TDs in Leinster House. Now, I've talked to a couple of TDs who are going and they want to hear what he has to say. But one of the issues which may come up is that we don't generally tend to name legislation after people. And Bill Browder is absolutely adamant that these laws have to be named the Magnitsky Act because it's in his honour and it attaches kind of a criminal element to it. You know, it really identifies this as what the issue is. So, you know, I think that a lot of TDs are broadly supportive of it in principle, but they, they want to hear exactly what it would involve. Now, listen, we've got Brexit and everything else going on, and I don't think anybody's under any illusions that this is going to be something that happens Is there this support year. for it, though? Um, I'm detecting a bit of reticence in relation to it, to be honest. People who I thought would have been, like I asked Catherine Murphy, was she supporting what he was proposing and she was supporting it in principle. Um, so we'll have to wait and see what comes from that. I mean, he's a really interesting guy. I listened back to the podcast that he was on and his story is incredible. It's really incredible. And, it, you know, to think that somebody can go around, travel the world, giving interviews and be Vladimir Putin's number one arch foe is incredible and his story it goes back quite some time but it'll be really really interesting to see what the TDs say after meeting him this afternoon and for his own take I mean he tried to get this law brought in here a couple of years ago but it was stopped at the 11th hour there was a threat in relation to the adoption of, of, of Russian babies so whether there's any fear of retaliation this time I don't know I spoke to him yesterday and he said that if the Irish authorities are afraid of a threat like that then that you know basically makes us a nation of very weak people. And he said that's not his experience of Irish people. And he made the point that if we don't bring in this Magnitsky Act, we have all of these states around us, including the UK, who do have it. And what will happen is we'll become a haven for money launderers because obviously we'll be a safe place. I'm I'm tempted to say not for the first time. (laughs) No. And we did did have issues before in the IFSC. We do have issues in the IFSC in relation to Russian money. Mm. And and we've we've gone, we've, we've, we know that. So, you know, he's, he's, He's not backing up the wrong tree anyway, but whether he can get the support for something that may in Irish politics be viewed as quite obscure at this current time, given all the challenges we face, will remains to be seen. We'll see. Jen, Fiak, thanks very much for joining us. And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks very much to Jen, to Fiak, to Pat and to Dennis for joining us. Thanks also to our producer Declan Conlon and our engineer JJ Vernon. And remember that you can always subscribe to us on iTunes or Spotify or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. You can find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. Your views are always extremely welcome. You can mail me at hlinehan at irishtimes.com or you can usually find me on Twitter. Until the next time, thanks for listening. 